Good morning. It is awesome to be with you guys this morning, both in person and online. I want to, uh, before we jump into the word this morning, just kind of tell you a couple of things. So one is that you should have received a video, if you are part of the Rio family at least, uh, through your email or through the app, and it's called the Good News Video, and we really want you to take a look at that. Uh, I talked to somebody this morning already. He was like, oh, man, it was good for the soul, and I'm thinking good for the soul right now is like, you know, like that's a good thing, okay? So it's always a good thing. Uh, But it feels uniquely special in this moment. And so I want to ask you if this is your church, and even if it isn't, because I think it would be a good kind of way to go, wow, the Lord works through these people to take a look at that. The other thing, and you may have heard about this, we have an election on Tuesday. How many of you know that? I'm thinking like if you are a primitive person in the bush in Australia, you know that. So here's what we don't do. Election cycle after election cycle, we don't get up and go, hey, here's who we think you should vote for, this person or this party or this person or this party. We don't do that. What we try to do is to create a biblically literate people. We want a people who are formed by God's word, and then we come to that group of people and we say, hey, you know what? One of the things that that word says to you is that you are to be the best of citizens, and part of that is voting. So I want to encourage you to vote, and then I also want to encourage you to vote Christianly, that is to say, as somebody who is informed by that word. One of the things that the Apostle Paul comes to me and says to me and to you is he says, hey, Tom and everybody else who claims Jesus, uh, this is the language. You are not your own. Just let that sink in for a second. I don't belong to me. You know, you don't belong to you. If you belong to God through faith in Jesus, you are his by virtue of creation and also of redemption. Jesus has purchased you at the expense of his life, suffering, death, burial, resurrection, and even ascension into heaven. He reigns and rules from heaven. He fills and anoints you with his spirit, which marks you as his property. And you and I are merely stewards of the life that we now live and everything in it. So what that means is that he owns my vote. And what that means is that I, Tom, need to sit down with my vote and all the issues before me, and I need to say, where, what is the mind of Jesus on this and on this and on this and on this, and even on the priority of the values of these different things? And I have his mind. It's in his word. He speaks directly to some things. He speaks indirectly to other things, but he speaks is the idea. And then as I enter into the booth to vote, hopefully today, tomorrow, or the next day, I enter in as his representative to cast a vote for him. So vote and vote Christianly, if you would. I think that's what we're called to in every area of our lives, the way that we work, the way that we, you know, parent, whatever it may be, that's how we live. We live, well, really, he lives through us, all right? So let's take that for a minute, and we'll give that to James. Okay, we're going to set it over here, and let's do come to the word of the Lord, and let's come to the word of the Lord as the servants of the Lord. I love what Samuel says. He hears the voice of the Lord and he says, speak, Lord, for your servant listens. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm here to listen. And I'm here to listen with an ear toward obedience. In other words, I'm not above you, Lord. I'm beneath you. I didn't come here to critique your word. I came here to be critiqued by it. I didn't come here to speak to you today. I want to hear you speak to me. So as we wrap up this study, what does he want to say? The last 10 weeks, and this is the 10th of 10, we've been doing this study that, as Sandy said, we're calling Jesus is greater. And what we've been doing is marching back into the Old Testament and looking at people whose lives were, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years before the life, suffering, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And what we've been finding in their lives is the life, suffering, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which is pretty astonishing if you think about it. 
But the patterns are there again and again and again and again and again. The similarities we've looked at, the dissimilarities we've looked at. And in in and through the whole of it, what we've seen is that Jesus is greater, not just than them, but that he's greater than everything and everyone else. Today, we're going to look at a contemporary of Jesus. One of his disciples, one of his three most intimate disciples, the foremost, at least arguably, apostle of the Christian church. We're going to look at Peter and we're going to look at an event that occurs in his life after the life, suffering, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so you see the difference, right? These guys were all before. This one happens after. The problem is you don't know why that even matters. It's sort of like, okay, I see the difference before and after. So what? Well, just think this through with me for a minute. It matters because our lives are taking place after after the life of Jesus, after the suffering of Jesus, after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, after the ascension of Jesus, like our lives are taking place on the same side of all of that that the story that we're going to look at today took place in. And what we're going to find is that that same pattern exists in Peter's life and in my life and in yours, even when, like Peter in the story, at least in the moment, you don't see it. And what we'll discover is that Jesus because of the pattern, and particularly the way it ends. Guys, he's greater. He's greater. He's greater even than our suffering. So the bottom line for today is this. It is that following Jesus involves suffering. I just want to pause there for a minute and say, okay, not everybody says that, but it's true. And so if you go to a church or if you're flipping through channels or if you're listening online and what you're hearing is that following Jesus is the way to not suffer, following Jesus is the way to become healthy and wealthy and all of these other things, if that's what you're getting, just keep clicking, okay? Just, just don't stop there because that is patently untrue. It wasn't the case for Jesus. It wasn't the case for any of his disciples or apostles. It has not been the case for any great Christian in the 2,000-year history of the Christian church. Following Jesus involves suffering. But so does just being a person. Can we agree with that? I mean, if you're a human being, you're going to suffer. Why? Because you live in a broken world and you have a broken body and all of our broken bodies, at least eventually at some point, end the same way. Like there will be suffering. So then what's the difference between being a Christian and not when you're involved in suffering? It's the rest of the statement. Following Jesus involves suffering, but... For the Christian, it's a suffering that ends, and I'm going to add the word eternal, in eternal glory. It's the ending of it. It's what it gives way to. It's what it generates as we go through the suffering in faith. And guys, it's that hope of glory that gets, it th- gets us through. That's what moves us along. So we pick up our study today in Acts chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, where Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, says this. He says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Okay, this represents a new problem for the first century church located in the city of Jerusalem. And by the way, in this moment in history, there was some outbreak of the church outside of Jerusalem, and there were some people who were not Jewish who were coming to faith in Jesus, but... Primarily, the church was still located in Jerusalem, in and around it, and primarily, in fact, almost exclusively, it was a Jewish church. In other words, it was people of Jewish descent and faith who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And when you did that, in that city, in this time, you lost everything, but you gained Jesus. So you're married, your husband or wife is not in on this. 
rejection. Your kids or parents are not in on this. Your siblings are not in on this and their families, like all of these other people. You're a business person, yeah, they're not shopping at your store anymore. You get the idea, like you are rejected by the community that was the community in which you had your identity. Now, you find a new identity in Jesus because, you know, you become a son or a daughter of the king through faith in Christ and you gain a brand new community, which in that day in particular through persecution was no doubt forged together. But dude, it was a lot of loss. And what Luke is saying is, all right, well, that was bad enough, or maybe it wasn't, because what this represents is a shift, and now the government has also turned against the church. Herod the king had the title Herod the king of the Jews. He was given the title by the emperor of Rome, and so he was the Roman governor there in Jerusalem and over the whole of that region of land called Judea, and he was not liked by the Jews and it was his job to govern over the Jews, and they were difficult to govern over. Like, it just, like he couldn't do anything right in their eyes. And so he's trying to figure out a way, and it's purely selfish. He's trying to figure out a way to make these unruly people kind of like him, kind of go along with his program, maybe shift their thinking regarding him, and therefore then make his life easy. And what he's realized is if he can stop Christianity, that's a huge win for these people. Because they hate Christians and Christianity. Like they are trying like crazy to stamp it out. They just can't produce a dead body because the tomb is empty. And so he thinks to himself, maybe if I persecute these people, these people out here, which are the majority, will like me better as their ruler. It's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? Like, I mean, as I played that out, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and I'm not an extremist, and I think I'm pretty temperate, honestly, uh, moderate in a lot of ways. You know, I started thinking, is that going to be different from our future? I'm not so sure that it is. I mean, the reality is we are a people formed by a word that is static. It's living and active, I understand, in terms of the way that it speaks to us, but it comes to us with an ethic. It comes to us with a set of mores and morals or values that are unchanging, Because they are the word of God, right? And so we are the community who hold to, who are formed by, who seek to live out and in grace proclaim that particular ethic, that particular set of values and so forth. And that is ever more the case that we are alienated. Why? Because the community around us has values that are ever-changing. So that creates sort of an awkward scenario for us where if you just play it out, you go, well, man, you know, like, you become increasingly alienated over time. Does it become something that the government goes, hmm, the majority doesn't like the minority. You know what? If you say this, if you don't do that, you know, we'll take your 501c3. We'll fine you or something. We'll do whatever. It's fascinating. You go back into the pages of history, into the pages of the Bible, and you find these people who lived through these times by faith, and they were far more perilous than anything we have yet faced. But you kind of go, man, if we ever do get there, we've got people to learn from. Severe persecution. And if you want to know how severe it is, Luke tells us. He tells us that Herod, in verse 2, killed James, who is the brother of John, And he was one of the Lord's three most intimate disciples. He was one of the most visible leaders of the Christian church with the sword. And so what that meant is that he cut his head off. That's it. 
And so right about now, you're probably wanting to go back to my original statement, which, you know, is that following Jesus involves suffering, but it ends in glory, and say, you know, it doesn't really look like it ended in glory for him, does it? I mean, it looked like it ended in him losing his head. And I, and I want to say, well, but if you're thinking that way, you're discounting or forgetting about the reality of heaven. Like, heaven is not real in that chain of thought. Heaven is not valuable in that chain of thought. And I think when you forget about heaven or discount the value of the eternal you lose the ability to follow Jesus when things do get difficult. When he comes and says, hey, listen, here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to live, and here's what I don't want you to do, and here's what I want you to say. And you look at these things, and you go, man, you know, how is this going to affect me in this life? Like, I mean, this is going to be incredibly costly. And he's like, yeah, I know that. But your life is about that long. I don't know if you can see that on the camera, but, you know, your life is about that long. Let's talk about eternity. It's way out here. And there is glory laid up for you when you live for me in this. So endure it. Walk through it. I think one of the greatest problems, if not the greatest problem, that we have as individual Christians, as a church, as the church, is that we forget about heaven, that we discount the value of it, that we live as though we evaluate the commands of Jesus, the calls to obedience, the sacrifices, the struggles, the suffering, the whatever that following Jesus requires of us, okay? We evaluate those things solely in terms of how they're going to affect us in this life as if there is no other life. And because they are going to affect us, we don't do it. And as a result, we live like functional atheists, unwilling to struggle for, unwilling to sacrifice for, unwilling to give to, unwilling to certainly die for Jesus because we're focused on this. And he's jumping up and down going, yeah, but what about this? Like, what about this? Like, this, this matters. Guys, do you know what James was thinking when he hit the streets of Jerusalem day after day after day and went up into the temple courts and proclaimed Jesus, knowing that he was alienating himself from his own family and everybody else who loved him and in whom he found his identity and community? Do you know what he was thinking as he looked very reasonably and logically toward the future and realized, hey, Herod is out of favor with these guys and he would like, frankly, their vote in a sense. So how can he get that? By persecuting us. You can see these things. Yet he kept doing it. You know what he was thinking when he was called into the chambers of Herod having been arrested? And Herod no doubt talked to him and said, hey, look, here's what I'm trying to bring about because this is really going to help me politically. I want to bring about the collapse of Christianity. Like we just want to get rid of you people from our midst because you're agitating all these other folks and I want to win their favor. And so what I'm thinking is that if one of the fathers of the Christian faith, one of the three most intimate disciples of Jesus... One of the pillars of the church, if you will just read this statement that I've written in which you claim that Christianity is a total fraud and you guys made all this stuff up, I'm going to let you live. Otherwise, we're going to march you out publicly. We're going to have you kneel before a block of wood. We're going to have you lay your head down sideways so you can kind of get a glimpse of the sword. And then we're going to cut your head off. Your choice. That's what he chose. What was he thinking when they marched him out? And that's what happened. It's obvious what he was thinking. He was thinking, well, if I die, I get heaven. I mean, what else could he have possibly been thinking? Because he knew that when he lost his head, he lost earth. And everything and everyone in it. Following Jesus involves suffering, but it's a suffering that ends 
in eternal glory. So Herod kills James. And Luke says in verse 3 that when Herod saw the killing James pleased the Jews. So his plan worked. I mean, he figured, you know, either you're going to read the statement or I'm going to kill you. And in either case, I win. Plan worked. Let's keep going. He proceeded to arrest Peter also, one of the other three most intimate disciples of Christ and really, arguably, the greatest leader of the Christian church in that moment. And he proceeded to arrest him so that he could do the same thing to him, cut his head off. And then Luke gives us this curious little detail. He says that this took place during the days of unleavened bread. That is to say, during the Passover. Why does that matter? Because all these details, and there are a ton of them, matter. Because Jesus was arrested and killed during the days of the Passover. And what he's doing is he's going, hey, guys, I want you to compare that story with this one that happens after that story. It says, and when Herod had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people so that he could execute him publicly. And so to that end, Peter was kept in prison, But, it says, earnest prayer for Peter was made to God by the church. Why? And I guess when you call through the Bible, you could, you know, discern several different reasons. So one reason, for example, that they might have been praying and that we ought to be praying is that we're commanded to. Not just to pray for each other. We are commanded to pray for those who govern over us. Think about that. Let that settle in a little bit. Let that provoke you. No matter who the person is or may become, We are commanded to pray for those who govern over us. You want to talk about somebody who is averse to the church? This leader is cutting the heads off of the apostles. It's remarkable. But I think these people were really praying for Peter because they believed in the power of prayer. Now, their faith is imperfect. We'll see an example of that. And actually, I'm glad that it's there because it's helpful to me. But they believed in the power of prayer, and frankly, God had brought them to a place where there just wasn't anything else they could do. I mean, they didn't have an army. They didn't have any money. They didn't have any political influence. You know, they couldn't fly, I don't know, Johnny Cochran in to come in and try to get him off. You know, like, if the gloves don't fit, you must acquit. Like, none of that. They had no ability to do anything else but to pray and trust God with whatever the results are going to be. And I think that the Lord does that for us at times in our lives too. It's like he sweeps in and then he just sweeps away anything else that we might cling to, anything else that we might trust in, anything else that we might look to for deliverance. And he's like, yeah, I'm just going to take all that away, but I'm going to give you me. Pray to me. Entrust the situation to me and entrust the situation to me knowing that my answer might be no or at least that it might be no to the way you've designed the prayer and offered it to me. And you've got to trust me in that when it is. And that was certainly the case with James. I mean, you know, when they arrested him, I mean, these people did the same thing, don't you think? They got together, they prayed for James. It's not like they went, eh, we don't like him, but we like Peter, you know. So we'll pray for him, not for James. No, 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 same deal. Crying out for his deliverance and what did God do? Did he deliver him from death? No. Did he deliver him through death? Yes. Different way of thinking about it, isn't it? See, if all you're thinking about is this, how do I preserve this? How do I keep this? How do I extend this? How do I prolong this? Quantity and quality of this. And you're not thinking about that. That's a problem. 
Like, I don't think James got to heaven and went, oh, man, I want to go back. You know, it's like, he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll see you guys when you get here, you know. These people are at great loss and suffering, no question. But that guy's in glory, man. It's all good. That's what he's thinking as he lays his head down, you see. If I die, apparently I'm about to, I get heaven. But I think the problem with us is, is largely not um, that we don't have faith for the fact that, okay, sometimes God's answer is no, at least in terms of the way that we've designed and offer our prayer. I think that our problem is we don't believe that he might answer the prayer. And I think the evidence of that is prayerlessness. Like if we really believed that God, the God of the heaven of, of omnipotent power is moved by the cries of his kids, like a good, good father that we sang of today. Man, we'd be on it, right? Luke's like, okay, so if you're not on it, just, just keep reading the story because it's meant to inspire faith and prayer among many other things. He says in verse 6, he says, Now when Herod was about to bring Peter out to kill him on that very night, so the night before the public execution in the morning, Peter, and I love this and I envy it, it says, was sleeping. So here's this guy who, you know, very reasonably believed, because this is just what happened to James, that in the morning he's going to be drug out there publicly and in great humiliation before a crowd of people who hate him, forced to lay his head down on a piece of wood and have it cut off, and he's asleep. Like, I don't sleep sometimes if I just have a meeting in the morning. It's crazy. It strikes me, because... This has been sort of a lifelong struggle for me, so I don't know. I'm chemically imbalanced, I guess. There's something wrong with me. I don't sleep. And as the stress level goes up, the sleep quality and amount of it goes down. Anybody else? This guy is sleeping like a stone. He's sleeping like the dead. Hang on. Because sleep is a metaphor of death in the Bible and in life. Hey, how did you sleep last night? You know, I might ask you that. You might say, well, I slept like the dead, you know, and then I won't talk to you for a month because I'm just, uh, I'm envious. We bury ourselves in our covers. You've got to understand these images to see the patterns. So here's Peter, he's asleep. And what is his posture? Like physically, what does he look like? It says, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. So one on his right, one on his left, bound with two chains. So he looks like this. That should look familiar. And centuries before the door were guarding the prison. The word prison means pit, by the way. And then we read that, Behold, an angel of the Lord, in answer to the prayers of God's people, parenthetically, came to free Peter from the pit, and he stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And then Luke says something really remarkable. If you think about it in terms of, of what else the Bible says about this, it says that he, this angel, struck Peter where? On the side. And what's remarkable about that is that every other account in the Bible, including the next story in Luke's gospel, in which an angel strikes someone, they die. So here's Peter. He's looking like this. He's suffering the metaphorical death of sleep. He, is, he receives what everywhere else in every other case would be a death blow, and he takes it on the side. The angel struck him and woke him from the sleep, saying, get up quickly. No, that's not what it says. It says, arise. 
That's the literal language, and it's a much better translation. It's the language of resurrection, and the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, dress yourself, which is a reference to his, I mean, frankly, his undergarments. Put your underwear on and your T-shirt, man, like whatever you wear under your clothes, let's get going on this, okay? And put on your sandals, and he did so. And then he, he said to him, wrap your cloak around you, now put on your outer garments. You see all these details? Don't they seem meaningless? Like you're reading the story going, what the heck is all that in here for? Because what Luke is trying to say is that when Peter was hanging, oh wait, he's not hanging, when Peter was sleeping, looking like this, receives what in every other instance would have otherwise been a death blow to his side, he was naked. So Peter gets dressed. He says, get dressed and follow me. And Peter does. And he followed him. And Peter did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. He's like, I don't know, am I sleeping? Am I awake? Like, what is this exactly? And now count the barriers or the impediments that he has to pass through to be be delivered from the pit. It says, when they had passed through the first and the second guard, they came to the third impediment to Peter's escape from the pit, which was the iron gate leading into the city, and the gate opened for them of its own accord. It was rolled away, if you will, and they went out, and they went along a street, and immediately the angel left him, and when Peter came to himself, like when he can't, wait a minute, I'm awake here, this is real, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Why? Because sometimes God's answer is yes. What does Jesus say? He says, you have not. Why? Because you don't deserve it, because you haven't worked hard enough for it, because you ask not. It's like he's up there with this great storehouse going, hey, you know, I'm the best dad, like, well, I'm just going to say it in the universe, and in my case, that's not bragging. So I have all these gifts for my children. There's so much I'd like to do for you. When Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And he knocked at the door of the gateway, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, and recognizing Peter's voice, that's how she recognizes him, she leaves him standing there. Says in her joy, she didn't even open the gate, and she ran in and reported to the group that's in there praying that he would be delivered that he was in fact delivered, that he was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And so they kept saying, it is his angel, which is the most confusing part of the story to me, honestly. Like, I mean, if Beth came to me and I'm watching football or whatever, and she said, hey, you know, there's an angel at the door. I, I mean, maybe I would think she's crazy. But if like I was the one claiming the angel was at the door and didn't get up to go see, like, what's wrong with you? You know, like... Oh, they're a dime a dozen, you know, I've seen them all, you know, seen one, seen them all. Like, what are they saying? I think what they're speaking to here is just how incredulous they are, just how crazy they think she is. I think they're just trying to make some kind of an excuse up to pass her off. Ah, you know, it's his angel, wink, wink, you know, whoo, she's nuts. Like, but I love this. It says, but Peter continued knocking. And in the doing of that, beckoning to them, and because this story is given to us, beckoning to us to do what? To believe that God miraculously answers our prayers. What else could it be? And so when they had opened the door, the gate, 
They saw him and were amazed, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James, meaning James, the brother of Jesus. So different James, he still had his head and to the brothers. In other words, he commissioned them to go and to tell about his deliverance. And then it says he departed and went to another place. Look, following Jesus involves suffering, but it's a suffering that ends in eternal glory. And the reason for that is because it follows the same pattern of the suffering and glory of Jesus, even when, like Peter in this story, we can't see it. It's the pattern of Jesus who's arrested at the time of the Passover. It's the pattern of Jesus who's bound and brought before a man named Herod where he's tried. It's the pattern of Jesus who is crucified to do what? to pacify the Jews of his day. It was a political play. It was a move. That's all it was. He hangs naked between two men, one on his right, one on his left. He receives what would have otherwise for sure killed him, but for the fact that he was already sleeping the sleep of death when the centurion comes at the end of the day because they want to get him down off the cross before the sun goes down and stabs him with his spear up under his ribs and into his heart. He's taken and he's put into a pit. He passes through three days, three impediments, before he is raised from the dead. He's released from the grave by an angel who rolls away the stone. His resurrection is first witnessed by women, one of whom is named Mary. And how does Mary recognize him? By his voice. She doesn't know who he is. She doesn't know who he is. She doesn't know who he is. He speaks her name. She knows who he is. They run to the disciples. They report Jesus is risen. <laughs> and, they, and the guys laugh at them. And they say, you're, you know, you're crazy. That, that doesn't happen. Like, that's nuts. Until they see him themselves. You're like, well, how do you know they saw him themselves? Because they laid their heads down on wood and had them cut off. Because to a man, with the possible exception of one, they suffered persecution and excruciating deaths. Peter is crucified later upside down. So if they had not seen a risen Jesus, they would know that all they have is this. And if all you have is this, why would you do that? They saw a man defeat death. Jesus meets with them. He commissions them to go out, tell the story of his deliverance to the world and of how the world can be delivered through him. And then he went to another place called heaven, the reality of which and the value of which has absolutely everything to do with our ability to follow Jesus here on earth. Everything. Following Jesus involves suffering, but it ends in eternal glory. And so I think the call of the story, first of all, is for us to stop living like functional atheists, evaluating all of the calls and the commands of Christ and all of the missions that he has for us and for that matter, anything else that might happen to us in this life as though this is the only life there is. And to begin to evaluate it in light of eternity, to stop focusing on the this and start focusing on the this. I think we need to stop functioning like like atheists. And instead, to be willing to sacrifice, to be willing to struggle, to be willing to suffer, to be willing to die. I hope it doesn't come to that, but you get the idea? That's the extreme value of the next life.
And I think secondly, the call is for us to start praying like people who believe that we have a God who supernaturally created all things, who supernaturally sustains all things, who hears and is predisposed to hear us, who commands us to come to him and ask him, who is the father, who is the giver of every good and perfect gift and to entrust our cares and needs and that of the world to him, to trust him when he answers differently than we ask. But man, to go believing that he is a God who responds with supernatural power, who moves in response to our prayers. We are missing the supernatural power of God in part because we don't claim it. (laughs) We don't operate in it. We don't ask for it the way that we ought. So no more functional atheism. And let us go to the Lord. And ask him to send his spirit. I'll close with two questions. Are you living like a functional atheist? And then secondly, what does your prayer life say about your faith and the power of prayer? That is to say, in the willingness and ability of God to answer your prayers with his miraculous power. Let's ask the Lord for greater faith. God, we come to you this morning. And we praise you that you are. I thank you for the faith of these men and women who went before us and who laid down absolutely everything, including their lives, because they could not unsee what they had seen, a risen Christ. Lord, we thank you for your spirit, whom you say you will give to any of your children who simply ask, and so we ask. Send your spirit. Fill us with your spirit. Lord, whatever language would apply, Let him fall upon us as a people, and not just at this church, but at all of the churches in this region. Lord, let your spirit fall upon your church. Give us faith by which to suffer, vision for the eternal, a proper heart to appraise its great value, and make us a praying people, humbling ourselves, disabusing ourselves of the idea that we're the answer or anything that we have is, and looking instead to you with an expectant faith. Do this, we pray, in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.